Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. We've had a few stories about bipolar disorder during our five seasons, but I think this is the first one to go deep into what it actually feels like to be manic. It can be very difficult for people to accurately recall manic episodes, because they aren't stored like typical narrative memories, but rather they often feel like confusing and out-of-control reveries that seem to have happened to a different version of themselves. And then comes the guilt and the shame that often follows manic episodes as a result of the loss of normal social inhibition, the lack of fear, and the surging dopamine levels, thus leading people to take risks and do things they would never normally do, typically within the three big S's, spending, speeding, and sex. I've been wanting to find someone who had the eloquence, the psychological mindedness, and vulnerability to tell their mania story. And as I've mentioned before, some prior episodes, this can be a really hard ask, and I needed to find just the right person. And then, fortuitously, I recently was listening to a podcast called Together Sober, hosted by Louise Barnett, and she spent an entire episode sharing her thoughts and insights on living with mania. I knew then that she would be the perfect person to tell her story on Back from the Abyss, and indeed this episode was a total delight to record with her. It's interesting because, you know, I was asked here today to reflect and talk about my experience bipolar one with mania. Part of that reflection, you know, takes me back to when this all began. For me, mania was not my first experience of bipolar. For me, I lived a relatively normal life and... When I started high school, I was in my second year of high school, and what felt like almost overnight. So I went from feeling completely normal, having a normal social life, having a, you know, 15-year-old boyfriend that, you know, we we were quote-unquote in love, you know, all the things, all my social activities and theater activities all felt normal. I remember writing a a paper in English class, and somehow that had me do some reflection into my past and about, it was actually about birth order. And I started diving into what that meant to be a middle child. And what felt like almost overnight, I fell into a darkness that I had never experienced before. And to be completely honest, have only ever experienced once since. And When I say darkness, I mean to the degree that I I quite literally could not function at school, at home, in activities, and nothing else mattered. I could see nothing else. I could hear nothing else. My days consisted of skipping classes and crying in the corner of the, I don't know, where all the kids used to hang out and going home and crying and crying and crying and crying and crying. And that's what I remember. It took on a life of its own. You know, of course, I'm sure my parents had some awareness around it, but to me, it just felt like I was completely on this island Um, and nobody could see me and nobody could hear me and I was never going to get out of it. I think in ways to somehow understand it or cope with it or get through with it, it led to behaviors like anorexia, like self-harm, suicidal ideation, a lot of embellished journal entries and dramatizing it as well. I would say creating an identity out of it. 
as a 15, 16 year old who is just trying to figure out who she is anyway, I kind of let it take on this like life of its own. And that was who I was. And I found another girlfriend who was going through similar depressions. And I remember we became, you know, self-harm buddies and that just became who we are. I think probably the most just impactful about that whole time period, which lasted at least six months, if not a year, was just that like, this was it. There was nothing else beyond this. The present just being so big and unmanageable and alone. I did have intervention. My you know, mom did obviously get involved when they found they found razors in my bedroom. And that was the thing that started my mental health care, my first kind of experience with mental health which has been a very long road. I'm in my 40s now. You know, ultimately, I think that's what started me to get some understanding of the depressive state that I was in, get on SSRIs was the drug of choice at the time for me based on what we knew. And I was able to, for the rest of high school, for like junior and senior year, you know, in and out of depressive states, but kind of Yeah, that was my question. Did you you get back to healthy or Mm. after that first horrific episode of age 15 was that then the start of as you said in and out but you did you ever get back to a significant period of feeling well not for a full year my parents ended up sending me across the country to live with a family at the end of my sophomore year of high school at the time I think my parents they probably would do things differently today But at the time, that made the most sense to them. And unfortunately, in that trip, there were circumstances and events that led to more trauma and more upset and more depression. And finally, coming back that summer, I, it was asked of me to recreate my life. My parents didn't necessarily approve of the the individuals that I were, they placed blame on individuals that I was hanging out with in early days of high school and wanted me to kind of recreate myself. Almost like this was contagion. Like maybe you were with the wrong people, got the bad ideas, like the cutting ideas and the suicidal ideas. If they could just sort of Mm -hmm. cleave off these bad people that you would be healthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was when I got back junior year, I think I, that was my first, not mania, but it was my first kind of taste of what I call putting on my mask. And I reinvented myself. I changed my whole friend group. I, you know, my, the senior basketball captain became my boyfriend. I started hanging out with the popular girls, you know, on the lawn at school, dressing differently, makeup differently, started drinking and just totally reinvented myself because part, part of it was asked of me to do that. And the choices I made were choices of rebellion. So I was like, all right, I'm going to reinvent myself and I'm going to, I'm going to do it with, you know, even worse people or, or, you know, like I'm going to show you. Um, um, You think I'm bad. Yeah. I'll I'll show show you. I'll show you bad. It was a little bit of that. And it was pretty, um, it's funny because when I was reflecting on this, this didn't really occur to me in my reflection, but there was a strong piece of me that wanted to just like 
show the world, like, this is who I am. And so to answer your question, it was false health, false, you know, healthy mental health, because that was the first time that I just started playing a part. And I've, I've really done that my whole life since. It works until it doesn't, usually. When was your first manic episode? At the time, I had no awareness of it. But in reflection, when I went to college, uh, first, so it was 2001, so I was 18. And I think a lot of it had to do with being free. A lot of my adolescence, all of my adolescence, I felt very just enclosed, captured, always fighting against kind of what my parents wanted to see from me. And when I got to college, it was like, I describe it as like the first time I put on my superwoman cape and I was set out to just like take over the world. And, you know, part of this was, you know, I had that, that captain of the basketball team left me for another woman and I was heartbroken. And, you know, I was just like, I'm going to reinvent myself again. And, but this was kind of on another level. Because in hindsight, this was a reinvention being driven by like like the methamphetamine kind of quality of emerging mm-hmm. mania. Emerging mania. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you talk about adolescent invincibility, which we all have as adolescents. And I think mania, for me at this time at age 18, it was like, like that pales in comparison, right? To just how I felt like I, I felt on top of the world. I felt like I could do anything, go anywhere. I had no limits. I could try anything without consequence, whether it's, you know, sex, drugs. I I probably slept an average of three to four hours a night my freshman year, sometimes drug-induced, sometimes not. Were bad things happening to you? You know, I mean, yes and no. I think what's really challenging about about my experience and why it took me until age 30 to have some awareness around it is because for all of the quote unquote crazy rebellious you know activities that maybe I was taking part in I was an A plus student I graduated cum laude I was you know top of my class you know and so it's like really hard to say like how could you be sick yeah yeah she's fine She's just making really bad decisions. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, she's doing all right. She's getting through. She's getting by. and So people weren't expressing concern to you? No. No. I think partially because of the environment of college, when everybody, to some extent, is dabbling in some kind of alcohol, drugs, some type of experimentation, perhaps we just don't realize, like, the extent to which, you know, the other person is or is not doing that. But you could have just seemed exceptionally fun, exceptionally yeah. vivacious, exceptionally sexual, yeah. risk-taking, but mm-hmm. again, crushing it academically. So mm-hmm. how bad could things be? Mm-hmm. 
She's the fun one, right? We'll go to Louise's room if, you know, we're going to have fun. She's always up to go out. She's always up to take a spontaneous trip. She's got a car. Let's, you know, drive to California this weekend. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, do you remember ever having glimmers of being worried about yourself in college, like during this extended first manic episode that is something wrong or is, you know, has something changed in me or was there ever any, you know, hints of insight? My life was perfect. My life was everything I wanted it to be. I was finally able to do what I wanted to do and on my own terms. Hmm. If you look at like the data, I was at the nurse's office every other week. I was sick every, you know, every month with strep or, you know, something dehydrated at the nurse's station, constantly getting rehydrated. But so I, your body was breaking down. Body was bra- physically breaking down. Yeah. But it didn't matter because of the way I felt. Mm-hmm. I felt invincible and it was okay because I was still checking the boxes of life. And again, as often happens in the, you know in the early manic episodes or early stages of mania, like it's mostly all good. Mm. You know, it, you hadn't yet started to flip to the other mm-hmm. side where you, I mean, your body was paying a big mm-hmm. cost, but you hadn't yet reached the place where your kind of mind, brain, and psyche was starting to pay a huge toll. No, no, not at all. And I didn't have, the only people holding me accountable were my peers, right? So this is also the first time that my parents haven't had a, a daily pulse check on me or even a monthly pulse check on me. So when you're in a long distance relationship, you can tell the other person what they want or need to hear. Mm-hmm. I think mania is also really lonely in a way. There's not a single friend that I've maintained from Mm. college. There's not a single friend even from that first year that I could call it a true, real, you know, companion. Mm. Because think of that, like as as amazing as you were, as amazing as you felt, Mm -hmm. as wonderfully as you were seemingly performing, arguably maybe the most important developmental task of that stage of your life, going away to college and and making friends and connecting and, and building a network of people like that didn't happen for you. No, I, I did feel lonely, but I used my tools, which were sex, drugs and rock and roll Mm -hmm. to like bring me out of that and create false like Mm -hmm. relationships I guess there's such parallels, I think, with mania and and substances. You know, I'm just hearing you say that, and I could imagine if you had substituted um, my cocaine times or my meth mm-hmm. times or whatever my substance times, that I was so fun, I was so engaged, I was actually kicking butt at school, mm-hmm. but I was so lonely, mm-hmm. so lonely, yet mm-hmm. so um, joyous, <laughs> you know, so euphoric, so completely, utterly driven, yet so lonely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think there's always a piece of it that's chasing. Everybody wants happiness. You don't have to be bipolar to want happiness, but like just chasing a false illusion of it and not really understanding what that is. But I think for me, when I talk about putting on my mask, like putting myself in different environments in front of different people in front of different cultures to try to figure out like, it's where I fit in. It's like that 
I don't know what the nursery rhyme is, but like when you're trying to find your family. <laughs> um, and because I remember like there was a period where I lived out in the woods in a tent and had pink, pink dreadlocks. And then there was a period where I was like in the ceramic studio as like the art girl. And, you know, it's just this like exhausting search for identity. Mm-hmm. Trying, um, on, trying on everything. Yeah. I could do this. I could do that. I yeah. Could do this, yeah. How did that start to morph then? So it sounds like your college years, you were largely in overdrive. Mm-hmm. And then you finished college, mm-hmm. and then your early 20s. How did your mood episodes, your manic, your depressive symptoms, mm-hmm. how did that start to um, evolve over time? The first thing that I noticed in reflection that really stood out that I never noticed before is it it took on a really like narcissistic quality to it. So in my early 20s, I still had that freedom. I was living my own first apartment. I was, you know, working a job. So I still had those levels. I was still maintaining a high level of um, sex, drugs, and alcohol, and socialization. You know, so that that stuff didn't change necessarily. But it was like, I felt like I was best in class. I felt like I knew everything about my industry. I felt like I had reached the highest level of success and I was bartending at like a local restaurant. But it, 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 to me, it felt like I had achieved it all and I was the best. And I remember now I'm, I'm kind of back in the same home state as my parents. And so I would see them on weekends and things like that. And I, I remember just like this, it's, I'm like sitting here at this table, like puffing out my chest because I just, it was like everything I did was just, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me. You can't tell me anything because I'm, I already know it Hmm. or I'm going to tell you otherwise. You could could imagine, you know, outsiders, including your family would could think, well, is this the arrogance of youth? Mm -hmm. But, you know, and again, in hindsight, it's looking like, you no, know, this was the kind of hyper ego inflation mm-hmm. of just sort of this low level, ongoing, mm-hmm. yeah, manic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, self. Yep. I felt beautiful. I felt so beautiful, which for me is, is, is something I struggle with. I had a few bouts of anorexia again in my 20s, kind of being reinforced by sexual attention you know, losing weight and, you know, men being attracted to that. And would the mania sort of interact with that such that you could get really kind of excited mm-hmm. and energized about your anorexia? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. this is my next project? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was, it was like, I mean, it was a whole nother conversation eating disorders, but there was um, a competitive nature about it, a self-competitive nature. And you are someone who's going to win. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Louise is going to win. I'm betting on you. <laughs> and once you like crack the code to it, it's like you're just off to the races. And so I felt like I'm, I'm talking about 2007 
specifically in my 20s, where I, I really, from an outside perspective, you're like, she's having an affair with a married man. She's a bartender. She's, what is she doing working 80 hours a week? Like none of that looks appealing. None of that looks desirable or like I'm working towards a solid future. But at the time for me, I felt like I was doing everything and taking all those steps to get me to that ultimate, like, pinnacle place of achievement and success and happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, we typically think of mania as being something that lasts days or weeks or maybe a couple months. But, you know, it's sounding like what happened with you was you had years of not like full-blown psychotic mania that ends mm-hmm. people up in jail mm-hmm. or or worse. But, you know, you were like 88% of the way there, mm-hmm. like in this like almost full burn, mm-hmm. like, but not quite enough to get you, again, arrested or dead mm-hmm. or, you know, quote-unquote functioning. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm, I think of the parallels of substance use. Like you could say the same thing back in those cocaine days or meth days. Like I was working, I felt great, da, 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 except that, yeah, it's working 80 hours a week, it's bartending, I was mm-hmm. on top of the world. But yet by other outside indi- indicators, like my life was not moving forward in a mm-hmm. way that I might have expected. Mm-mm. No, my, my, my parents were desperately worried about me from a, from a progression success standpoint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what is she doing with her life? But um, they had no idea what this was. Not really. No, uh, no. I mean, we had an understanding that I have depression struggle with anxiety that's definitely something that you know came out and 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 eating disorders yeah and And were you in treatment like through college and then these first years outside after college again when you are again mostly doing okay but also like there there are other signs that things are really falling apart yeah kathy kirschenbaum kathy kirschenbaum was my first therapist when i was 15 years old and she's helped me tremendously on and off over the years she's the only therapist that I've had until my 30s when I had some major, major changes that we'll get to. But she was always that person. And I think deep down inside of me, there was always some awareness because I would always go back to Kathy. You know, it could have been two years, three years, whatever it was that I hadn't spoken to her, seen her anything. And I would always go back to her. Mm. And in 2008, I had awareness around my eating disorder and I had fallen into a depression and I called Kathy. <laughs> mm. And Kathy got me in touch with with an eating disorder program. So that was the first mental health like program facility that I went to, but it of course wasn't addressing the root cause. Yeah, I was gonna say like the self-harm, the suicidality, the yeah. eating disorder, the the substance abuse, like these were all, it turns out, symptoms mm-hmm. of this core. But nobody in your twenties is saying no. maybe you have bipolar disorder no. or maybe you're having manic symptoms or nobody's no. seeing that. No. Do you think that's because you hit it so well? And or because you were functioning, quote unquote, so well, or because, uh, or you were maybe consciously or unconsciously avoiding people who might tell you something you didn't want to hear. You never ask for help when you're manic. True. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you ask other people if they want help. I'll buy your drinks. Yeah. Get in my car. I don't know your name. Where do you want to go? Uh, no. But no, seriously, like I asked for help when I was in a depressive state. Mm-hmm. And if that's, Like, I'm giving you 25% of the information by doing that. Yeah. So I truly believe that. And I I hid stuff from Kathy, like from age 15 to um, 
you know, 28 or whatever, like, again, it's, it's up to you as the individual to be honest and forthright and, you know, with your mental health providers. And there were times when I was and times when I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So she's doing the best that she can with the tools and the resources and the information that she has. Right. And it was so inconsistent. I mean, I saw her consistently in high school. And then after that, it was like, you know, call her when I need mm-hmm. kind of thing. When did you start to have manic symptoms or manic episodes that were you know, meaningfully, terribly causing significant problems? So not just, you know, yeah. in, in college, you know, we talked about the isolation, the lack of friendships, or, you know, we, you just mentioned the lack of any kind of career mm-hmm. progression and needing to burn the candle at both ends just to make it financially. But mm-hmm. when did when did it start to become apparent, maybe if not to you, to at least some people around you, mm-hmm. that something was really wrong? Mm-hmm. 30. Age 30. 12 years later. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's so many, I think what's so interesting about bipolar one or, or my experience of bipolar one is like, there were two years when I accomplished an MBA under relatively good mental health. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's definitely periods that you can tuck in here that, and I think that's why sometimes it is so hard to diagnose because, okay, maybe I was you know, a little bit out of sorts or a lot out of sorts at age 22, 23, but from 24 to, these are just random numbers, but from 24 to 26, look at her. She's getting an MBA. She's in a healthy relationship. She's, you know, things are seemingly okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a dangerous cycle when it's spread out like that because you don't have those consistent data points. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard you talk on your podcast about, mania and bipolar disorder is a superpower, you know, mm-hmm. in sounds like from 18 to 30 ish, there was a lot of superpower there. Perceived superpower. Perceived superpower. <laughs> 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 yes. I would say from 30 to 40 is when I honed in and like created greatness, like mm-hmm. truly. But at the same time, I think what probably you're saying is like, when you do look back, like I've, I've accomplished a lot you know, even as a, as a rambunctious 20 something year old. And again, like, I think that's why it's so hard for the individual to gain awareness mm-hmm. and for the outsider to gain awareness. Mm-hmm. When From did my you, experience. Yeah. When did you start making decisions that uh, now as you look back, you realize that these were starting to be increasingly terrible decisions because you, you really were not in your right yeah. mind. Like you were not healthy you. Yeah. 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 And 30. And I think it's because in my mind, I thought it was normal to do sex, drugs and rock and roll to the extent that I was like, because I was surrounding myself by people who were also doing the same. And so my perception was that that is normal. That is healthy. That is okay. I chose to surround myself by those people. Age 30, things took a a weird turn. I had been in a long-term relationship, probably not the best person for me, you know, in retrospect, but it was a, all things considered, relatively healthy relationship. And we got married and 
less than a year after being married, I met, I was in, I was 30 and I met a 20 something. Um, and over the minute I met him, like the minute I saw him, I fell in love, like just head over heels. He is amazing. He is wonderful. I want to have your baby in love. Mm. And within two weeks I was pregnant and had blown up this relationship, you know, with somebody that I had a long history with. And in that moment, as upsetting as it was to, I think what's interesting too, is you can be in mania and still feel negative and depressive emotions. Like it doesn't mean that you're not crying. I mean, part of mania is anger, but like, I remember like such a dichotomy at that time because I was blissfully in love, you know, now pregnant and we're going to live happily ever after. And at the same time, completely heartbroken because I've destroyed this relationship. My parents are no longer talking to me. Like life has really blown up. Mm -hmm. Lost lost your first husband Mm -hmm. and and your parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the family, I was living with family in um, Annapolis, Maryland, who, who cut me off as well at that time. So it was like all of these relationships are Real relationships, right? Not the fake ones that I've had my whole life. Like real relationships in an instant have just disappeared. But in mania and that narcissism that comes with it and that denial, like it was like, how could they? Don't they see, you know, I'm doing the right thing. He was never the right person for me. It doesn't matter anyway because I'm in love and I'm having a baby and everything's going to be amazing and perfect and, you know, 20-something, you're going to take care of me. And it's like this false hope, maybe. And a constant, like, I, I feel like this is a recurring theme, like a constant, I think I've always been a futuristic thinker. I think that's just part of who I am as a human being. But it's like that constant quest to like get that future perfect life, whatever it takes. And not having any awareness or understanding that, I mean, I look, I mean, well, maybe we'll talk about shame and guilt, but it's like, I look back at this and I'm like, how could I have done this? Like, this is what awful people do. Hmm. Yeah, say more about that. How have you, you know, how have you begun to sort of come to reckoning with the things that happened again, starting at about age 30 and, and on onward? I'm sure we'll have more where actually you were getting to a point where you were really desperately hurting people. Yeah, I mean, one thing that started happening at 30-ish is that just as regularly as I was going into mania, I was experiencing depression as well. And so it's like this. You get to the top of the mountain and everything is exactly where you want it to be. And then you take one step, crash, and you're all the way at the bottom. And you have no idea how you got to the top in the first place. And nobody's down there. Nobody was waiting for you. They left you when you were like three quarters to the top. So shame and loneliness is a really dangerous combination. 
and you gain some awareness that your behavior was erratic in depression. Yet you're so <laughs> embedded in this horrible, you know, self-loathing doubt nihilism that it just like makes all that a thousand times worse. Mm -hmm. And I experienced that because just as fast as I fell in love with Mr. 20 something and got pregnant, I gained awareness and fell out of love and realized what I had done. And now I'm left as a future single mom, pregnant, alone, no family, no friends, like nothing. And it's those times where I think we're incredible. And I think that our resilience shows how incredible we are as bipolar human beings. <laughs> because it was then that there was no choice. I had to do what it took. Regardless of any of the circumstances, I put myself in that situation and I had to do what I needed to do to make it better. And so in a long period of relatively stable mental health, being pregnant, and all the way until Annabelle was eight months old, I experienced what it was to feel normal for the first time since I was 15 years old. I describe it as like the ability to breathe. In mania, you can't breathe. You're going too fast. You can never catch your breath. And in depression, you can't breathe either. <laughs> You're stifled. And from two months pregnant to an eight-month baby, I made real friends. I got a new good job, made amends with my mom, parents, I should say. Enjoyed being a mom. Mm. Felt happiness. Felt contentment for where I was in that moment. Knowing that there was growth ahead, but like, Truly just feeling yeah. okay. Do you think that you had that period of doing well more because no. you were pregnant and you were finally you know, taking care of yourself and or there's this whole phenomenon, I can't believe if we've talked about it, but a lot of women with mood disorders during their pregnancy actually do well. It's the postpartum mm -hmm. that's catastrophic, but interestingly, even women with really severe mood disorders often do very well mm -hmm. in pregnancy. I mean, do you have a sense of that? Like why you had that kind of period of clarity and stability? I've always wondered because, yeah, I mean, I wasn't medicated on anything throughout the pregnancy or, or even as a new mom. I think part of it is arguably I've lived a really selfish life up until having a baby. And that shift of needing to take care of that other human and in my case needing to do it completely alone my parents live in africa like nobody was helping me <laughs> um part of that just wasn't a choice either i think but yeah it's interesting i have another family member that has some mental health unresolved mental health serious mental health issues and she just had a baby and ironically this is a very close family member Ironically, she just reconnected with us after four years. So I think there is something there. Yeah. And it's probably something just very deeply, if you will, kind of biological, evolutionary, that mm -hmm. when you have a baby, like you need your tribe. Mm -hmm. Like if you've cut yourself off from your tribe for whatever reason, you, mm -hmm. it's probably a time to try to reconnect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't have postpartum. Mm -mm. 
That's amazing. No. It's so common with bipolar one. Yeah. 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 No, I felt really good. And I think that those two women, those friends that I made that I ended up leaving, but those were like the two real friends that I, I feel like I've really ever made in adulthood. <laughs> it just felt real and authentic. You know, I make a lot of the, the mask is always on. Um, and I think in that period, the mask was not on. The cape was not on. It was just me and my baby. And it lasted until it didn't. I've always chased this happily ever after for me like men is a common theme in my story because in my mind that's the solution to finding that happily ever after and so probably the most escalated mania that I've lived through where I've put myself in dangerous positions my daughter in dangerous positions is when Annabelle was eight months old and I met somebody, fell instantly in love and within two weeks drove me and Annabelle from the East Coast to Dallas, just completely on a whim to live happily ever after with this individual. And thus the cycle continues of the, I'm doing everything right. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. This is going to be the key to my success. I don't need your help. I can do this all by myself. Mom and dad stop talking to me. I mean, like, it's like, I don't even know what to say. It's like, mm-hmm. it just, everything just happens again and You're again just and back again. In it. Yeah, yeah, just right back in it. But just with this euphoric, like, feeling that, like, this is it. Every time you're manic, you're like, this is the one. This is it. I finally found the golden coin or whatever like it the is. The job, the idea. The project, the boyfriend, the yeah. workout routine, the business proposition. Everything. So whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, still high functioning, right? This whole time I've been a very active drinker. And I think, again, it's like I have not been able to have the self-awareness because I've been able to check the boxes. I was able to get the job that paid the bills, that did the, the you know? be high performing at work. And so it's like all those things just keep telling me on paper that it's okay. And when you live a decade or more, what is this? Yeah, a decade or more of these cycles, this is normal. Like there is no, I'm discovering at 41 what normal is. And for the, those decades just telling yourself and thinking to yourself that this is your reality. Like this is what life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be dramatic. It's supposed to be up and down. It, this is just me. These were the cards I was dealt. Like not once is it like I might have a mental health condition. Mm-hmm. And so how does that, 
then lead to you finally getting a bipolar diagnosis and starting to get in treatment? What was the progression to that? After a series of many, many events with this individual who ended up just being a very dangerous individual, I was able to finally fully get rid of that relationship and get out of that situation and fell into a depression that I had not experienced since I was 15. But it hits different when you're in your 30s and have a baby and responsibilities and nobody there to like help or you don't think anybody's there to help. And I didn't, I didn't want to do it anymore. I had had enough. I had had enough of the ups and downs. I had had enough of seemingly getting my heart broken. I, I didn't want to do it. I hated her. I hated being a mom. Mm. I resented it. I regretted it, mm. which are thoughts you never want to say out loud, by the way. Um, but I think it's so, <laughs> no, I think it's so honest. And it's also so, it just shows like the power of the mind and psychiatric illness to take you to places that are just unimaginable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you've never had the stomach flu and you try to describe that to somebody, mm-hmm. they, I don't, you, you have to have the stomach flu before you really mm-hmm. understand like what that is. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're describing, like when you're really in a delusional, and I would argue all severe depression is mm-hmm. delusional. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I hate to hate this kid. Hate, I shouldn't have been a mother. I, I regret having her. Like all these core things of you mm-hmm. are just turned over on, mm-hmm. on, a, on their head. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Did you start getting suicidal then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, I would walk every day with the stroller and just vivid memories of a bridge that we would walk over every day. And there was one day that it, it just got a bit too real. And, um, I called my, I called my mom and dad in Africa. Um, I was also very, very grossly underweight. I had found myself in another cycle of anorexia and I called for help. I had not been in touch with them. But I called them for help and they came and flew over and I admitted myself to Texas Presbyterian Mental Health Hospital. I knew I needed to do that because there were no, I had run out of solutions. Like there was nothing else I could do. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to make it and she wasn't going to make it if I didn't go. And I, I guess that was my way of giving up, but it changed my life. I don't remember um, most of it, but I remember coming out of my room, I guess one morning day, I don't know, and speaking with a psychiatrist. And over the decades, I've seen a lot of just, you know, one-offs, you know, so I know the drill, like I know how it goes. Um, And she... 
she listened to me. I mean, she asked all the questions, right? So I was, I was used to that. I was prepared for that, but she listened to my answers in a way that I felt like I had never been listened to or heard before. And I don't remember it being a very long conversation. And I remember her just simply saying, I'd like to try on a new medication if that's okay. And I must have said yes. And do you think you were on meds then? I must have been something. They must have sedated. I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. my whole life I've been on and off of Zoloft. So God knows if I was on it or not at Mm -hmm. the time, probably not. And took the cup, took the pill, went back to bed. And I remember this so vividly. It's a decade later. I remember waking up the next morning and seeing the sunshine into my room peeking behind the clouds and I remember being able to breathe and this was probably 24 hours after taking my first dose of lithium and life has not been perfect since I have certainly had panic episodes since and depressive episodes since Um, but lithium changed my life yeah how has it changed your life Um, so much of what we talked about today, I've been retelling as memories, as stories. There was no awareness at the time. And first of all, having a diagnosis just on paper, bipolar one is sometimes the scariest, but for me was the most freeing thing in the world. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you got this whole new lens, like, like this doc is like, you look at not only where you are right now, but look back at your last many years and just look with this lens mm-hmm. and just see what you see. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you're right. I think what you're, mm-hmm. you're describing is all of a sudden everything made sense. Mm-hmm. A lot of the awful things that you'd done and people you'd hurt, it made total sense in the context of the illness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take away the the, the guilt and the shame and, you know, it doesn't take that away, but it allows you, you said it so perfectly, like to just look at it from a new perspective and to just say, wait a second, like there's more at play here than just bad Louise mm-hmm. that can't get it together. Choosing bad men, making bad yeah. decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, that's who I had become. So from being medicated and now entering formal, regular, routine mental health care. I did start an intensive, you know, outpatient therapy and things like that. And then I saw Shane like twice a week for years. (laughs) So, you know, finally, you know, getting myself to a place where I'm getting constant care allowed me to start collecting data points. And Things were far from perfect. I still, you know, a big piece of my story is finding my sobriety, which I didn't find until three years ago. So, you know, there were still six years of just kind of ups and downs and, you know, still still some radical behavior, but also starting to learn, first of all, like when that behavior is coming, mm-hmm. like, isn't that a novel idea <laughs> to know like when it's going to come or start understanding the signs that are leading up to it so that you can be proactive about your mental health. Yeah. Do you have a sense, Louise, uh, you know, you talked about getting more stable after lithium, but still you were drinking heavily mm-hmm. and there, 
you know, it was relative, you're still unstable. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense how much that continuing instability was alcohol? Because I'm wondering, number one, you know, alcohol wrecks deep sleep and REM mm-hmm. sleep. And we know mm-hmm. that for all mood disorders, particularly bipolar one, like sleep is critical. <laughs> I mean, sleep is the is nature's mood stabilizer. Mm-hmm. So I'm imagining you maybe even diligently taking your lithium, but mm-hmm. still yeah. drinking heavily. Yeah. So not getting you know, restorative yeah. sleep and thus continuing the chaotic cycles of yeah. bipolar. Yeah, yeah. And the drinking, it, it wasn't on a social level. I mean, it was progressing more and more. So the same things that, it's interesting, like the same things you need to be successful, like as a bipolar person, routine, schedule, uh, sleep, um, healthy food, you know, all of these things are all of the things that you, yeah, you don't get them when, when you're drinking. And there was still like, just because I'm on lithium doesn't mean I'm not bipolar. Like I, I am bipolar. I will always be bipolar. One thing I thought was so interesting uh, on your podcast, you talked about, you had an episode where you talked about being bipolar versus having bipolar. Mm. And you are adamant that for you, it was really important to say, I am bipolar. Mm -hmm. And speak to that a little more, because I I was really struck by that. I thought you had such an interesting explanation of why that is so important for you. Yeah. And and definitely it's important for me. And it might not, not be the right perspective for somebody else, but... For me, okay, if I have something, I have the flu, I have a headache, I have a bad mood, I have sadness, I have happiness, those are all things that will change inevitably and that you can change if you want to. So I, I do agree when we say things like, I am sad, that, that we should change that and say, I have sadness <laughs> because you're not going to be sad forever. I'm noticing sadness. <laughs> sadness has alighted within me. Exactly. But as somebody that having discovered a bipolar diagnosis has allowed me to understand my identity, form my own identity, truly use my bipolar as a superhero, it is innately part of who I am. And if I don't acknowledge that, then I'm always going to be fighting something. I'm always going to be pushing something away. But if I can embrace it as truly part of my DNA, part of who I am, that's going to be the exact thing that allows me to use it to my best ability because it, it has the ability to do that. And so for me, that's, that's why. It's part of me it makes me beautiful. It's why I'm having this conversation with you today so other people can listen and know that like this is not something to hide. It is something to understand and learn about and figure out how you can, you know, make it the best piece of you because that's going to be different for you and that's going to be different for me. But yeah, I, I don't want to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Another thing you talked about in your podcast I was really struck by was this idea that 
when you have bipolar one, like the full blown mania and, mm. and you know delusional suicidal depression, you've experienced zero to ten. Mm. Zero being the utter depths of depression, ten being. Um, mm-hmm. Although I would say you've experienced eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Um, and then you you talked about how most people without a mood disorder kind of live four to seven, mm. like yeah, sadness, frustration, mm-hmm. grief, um, joy, but not the the unimaginable kind of highs and lows of 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 bipolar disorder you went on to say a little bit more about sort of life on lithium Mm -hmm. and that that reminded me of something i hear a lot with my patients and that there's this sense with lithium that there's a fear with lithium that it's going to blunt me it's going to take away the happiness Mm -hmm. it's going to take away the joy it's going to take away the kind of the superpower of me Mm -hmm. it's going to yeah, it's going to dampen me, limit me. And I'm curious, and you spoke a little bit about that on your show. I wonder if you might say a little bit more about kind of your sense of this, you know, zero to 10 or zero to 11 down to four to seven. What's been your experience pre and post lithium? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why, like, if we have bipolar, we're really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Because nobody else gets to experience this. So... Yeah, I equate like, yeah, zero to 10, right? So zero is obviously that depression that I described right before I went to Texas Presbyterian Hospital, just you're never going to get out of it. And now I probably feel my feelings, you know, bigger than my husband does, right? So if I'm going to be sad about something, if I'm going to be angry about something, like he's going to maintain some kind of an even keel, and I'm just going to like feel it a little bit bigger. And from a mania standpoint, this is where I think I'm the luckiest girl in the world because I still experience mania today. I'm almost three years sober and I'm really starting to dial in and understand what that looks, feels like, how I'm behaving, you know, all of these things. And what's super cool about it is, you know, instead of driving 1400 miles across the country on a whim with my baby, 11. (laughs) Um, I'm like creating content. I'm creating a podcast in a 48 hour time span that's helping people, you know, overcome their sobriety. Or, you know, I am, you know, coming up with like really amazing ideas at work that we're starting to implement, you know, on a global level. Or I am, just like, you know, enjoying life as a social person who maybe isn't like at my baseline who I am anymore. But certainly when I'm manic, I'm like, yeah, let's go apple picking. Let's go, you know, pumpkin picking. Let's like go do all these fun things. And so that's where I say, I don't think I had a superpower in my 20s. Like I have it in my 40s because Mm. right now, like when I look at the truly remarkable things that I've accomplished in the past three years, they've been in some kind of state of mania and that doesn't make me crazy. And that doesn't mean I need to go see you for an extra session or like, you know what I mean? It just means that I'm aware of this and I'm able to produce at that higher level. And, you know, (laughs) it's almost like lithium's put like a regulator valve on Mm. it. Like you still, you know, even when I first met you, (laughs) I thought, wow, you, you're, you are a a little person (laughs) with like, you know, you're like a supernova and, you know, and, and that's on, you know, a pretty big dose of lithium. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, I haven't ever known you when you were back in your, you know, crippling, disabling mania, but I, you know, I see that, I mean, I see that sitting, like you are infused with joy and mm-hmm. excitement. And even when I first showed up here at the office to record this today, you had the <laughs> hugest smile. You're like, I'm so excited. So Energizer bunny. <laughs> yeah. So it is interesting to see that you, it, it seems kind of like best case scenario, what we'd hope for that you, we wouldn't have, treatment wouldn't have somehow like dialed you down or changed you so much that you would say, well, I'm not the person I want to be, or I know I am, but I have to be this way so I can be in the world. Mm, mm. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to think I'm on that track. I don't have a lot of confidence in myself because I have a pretty long track record, you know, game changer for me was cleaning my body and mind and making sure that alcohol was no more. And ever since that transition, it's it's been, yes, the lithium, yes, the sobriety, but notably like the intense, intense work to surround myself by my care team, DBT therapy, everything I read, everything I listen to. It is a full-time job staying mentally healthy. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm just waking up every day and being like, Woo, let's just go live my life. Like there really is intent put into every day mm-hmm. and some days suck. Just recently I, because I have, have been collecting these data points and I, have, I know I've said that like a hundred times, but because I have been able to collect them, like I have the ability to see, okay, my, my body is feeling sluggish. I'm, I'm not sleeping the way I normally am. I'm not hungry. I'm not feeling excited by things that normally excite me. And same with mania, right? Like I'm able to see, okay, I'm getting little tinglings in my fingers and behind my eyes. I'm talking really, really fast. I'm, I'm coming up with a lot of ideas and I can't seem to come up, you know, catch up my own breath. And I, I, I know all of these tiny little, maybe seemingly insignificant symptoms, if you just look at them one by one, but when you put them all together, it's enough for me to know, okay, Dr. H, like, Let's go ketamine. Okay, Dr. H, like, I don't think we need to do anything, but I'm feeling pretty awesome right now. have a skin disorder, skin disease, you could imagine that you could become very hypervigilant of your mm-hmm. skin. If you have a pain disorder, some pain syndrome, you can become very hypervigilant of your mm-hmm. pain. If you have a mood disorder, mm-hmm. how could you not become very mm-hmm. observant and hypervigilant vigilant of your moods? And because you said like your superpower has, you know, of late has been your excitement, your productivity, your joy, your ideas, your creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, you just started to touch on that. Like, how do you know when this is superpower Louise versus mm-hmm. like, this is flipping into something again, where we need to talk or like something mm-hmm. needs to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, you, I know you just got to that, but no, and, and it also goes the other way, you know, where it's normal to feel sad or mm-hmm. disenchanted or demoralized or grieving and 
you've experienced such depths. I'm guessing it can be hard too when you feel badly, yeah. when you feel sad, when you feel like, I just don't want to do anything. Yeah. It's almost, I can imagine like, oh no. Yeah. Like, is it this the initial sparks of a, a plunge into something terrible? That's what's tripping me up more lately, if mm. I'm being honest. I feel like, because I do have a decade of medicated mania that I I do have a really good pulse on like the physical symptoms that I receive before even getting into mania, which tingling in the eye, my sleep starts diminishing a little bit, not a crazy amount. I start to just feel extra motivated, you know, extra excited about even menial tasks, like doing the dishes is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, And so I do have like a good pulse check on that. The depression side is a little bit trickier because for me, I don't know what is normal. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel yet. It's something I'm still really trying to figure out. Like, even right now, it's we're recording this December 2023. I'm not super motivated at work. I'm not super excited to, like, start my day really excited about this podcast, but like in general, like I feel like I'm just kind of meh, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of numb. And it's like, I ask myself constantly, like, is that just normal? Mm. Is that, and then I get paranoid. Is that headed to a depression? So usually I'm just an over communicator (laughs) is my solution. Yeah. If we were sitting in in a session together, what I would say and again, this is something you and I talk about a lot. And, you know, I talk about my other folks with bipolar disorder um, who have bipolar disorder uh, is that there's a whole bunch of contextual fact- factors to think about too. So it's December right mm. now. The light is low. We know that anybody with a bipolar, well, many, many people with a bipolar spectrum mood disorder, the vast majority really struggle yeah. November, December because of lack of blue lights and, and a bunch of other factors. So, you know, as you're saying, I just am not very motivated for work again, which is hard for me to imagine because you, <laughs> you, you're in general so excited. But I, yeah, I, if we were, you know, having a session, I would say that makes sense because mm-hmm. it's December. Like mm-hmm. this is a low energy, low mo- motivation time on average for human beings and people with mood disorders, particularly bipolar would like, this is often, even if you're not quote unquote depressed mm-hmm. or like this is, this is a rough time. Mm-hmm. It's just that your bar is high. Mm-hmm. It's very high for what, yeah what you could or should feel like. Yeah, I want that dopamine. I want that. Like I I know, I don't want to say on a regular basis, but kind of, like on a at least a few times a year, I know what it's like to get that constant hit of dopamine, like just all the time, every day. And just as we get adjusted to that in drug use, alcohol use, whatever it is, like we, that's our baseline. Mm-hmm. You know, my baseline, I, everybody's different with bipolar. I tend to describe myself as somebody that functions at a six or seven mm-hmm. on a normal day. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. It's almost like in your, as you call it, your um, medicated mania or, you know, your sober on lithium days, it's almost like you have like, almost like diabetics have an insulin pump. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you have an Adderall pump. <laughs> You know, and it just, it just drips a little bit of Adderall or just a little, just a teeny bit of methamphetamine into you, but not enough to, Mm -hmm. to meaningfully negatively affect your life, but enough to make you kick butt. Yeah. And that is this, um, you know, this amazing power that we seem to knock on wood, at least for now, like we have kind of tamed the beast. Mm. It's not gone, Mm -hmm. but you know, but right now it's like you, 
you have a 500 horsepower engine mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. boy, it really has powered you to some heights. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a common fear of a lot of people, like what you said earlier, like, am I going to be a different person? Are you going to take all of that like amazingness away from me? Like, and the reality is with all the right care team tools in place, medication, healthy body, healthy mind, it can be harnessed in a way that is so super, super productive. Mm -hmm. And, and, and people will look up to you for it mm -hmm. um, and aspire to have that energy and motivation. And, you know, yeah, I think too, you're such a good example of there's, you know, there's a whole range of what bipolar disorder looks like. And even within bipolar one, there's a range, but there's a kind of subtype of bipolar one where people are mostly hypomanic manic. Mm -hmm. they, they don't really have, that much depression. And, you know, as I tell people I work with, that's both a, both a blessing and a curse. And that in terms of completely destroying your life, mania tends to do that more mm -hmm. in a more dramatic and mm -hmm. a rapid fashion than depression. But, but mania is much more treatable. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, so many people with bipolar spectrum mood disorders are mostly in depression mm -hmm. and that's way harder to treat. Mm -hmm. So the irony is it's like you have, arguably the most severe kind of bipolar one in terms of like the, the big mm -hmm. hot symptoms, the mania and the just completely out of control, but you also have the most treatable kind. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so many people on with bipolar disorder on four five, six, seven meds and you're basically on lithium. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Some Which, vitamins, but yeah. like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And if, you know, if you are, and I, seems weird to use this word fortunate, but if you're fortunate enough to have the type of bipolar one that mostly leans manic, mm. especially the kind of euphoric mania that you had, I mean, lithium is gold typically standard. a yeah, gold standard yeah. home run. Yeah. yeah. Thank goodness for lithium. I do. And I, what I said earlier, it changed my life. It changed my life. Mm -hmm. I feel so grateful. We've changed, we've actually gone up doses over the decade. I'm at the highest dose I've been at, but I also know that a lot of mental health medications cause a lot of side effects and things like that. And for me, it just, I don't know, it's just always served me, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It, mm -hmm. it, there's never been a moment where there's been a compromise or something I'm giving up because of it. As we wrap up here, Louise, I wonder if we might just um, talk about, in general, like, what do you think people most don't understand about bipolar disorder or mania or, you know, what you've been through? Because you, you have had an extraordinary life in terms of the vast range of stuff that you've experienced. And, you know, again, the kinds of experiences that most people will only read or hear about. Mm -hmm. But are there any things that you think that maybe people listeners might not get about bipolar disorder or mania specifically? Yeah, a, a couple of things come to mind. And obviously I'm speaking from my perspective and my story, but I think it took us as long as it did to find a diagnosis because my mania wasn't for a couple of days or a week or two, two weeks. It was for months, like maybe arguably even a year at a time, you know? And 
So I think that's... People just thought that's how you were. Yeah, that's how I was. And I also think there is nothing black and white in this world. And mania is right in that bucket, right? Like, so, you know, we can take out the DSM-5 or we can, you know, take out all the Google lists that we print of of what it looks like to be manic, but there's always going to be a gray area. So I think, like how I said earlier, like I was manic, but I was also feeling feelings of depression as well. Like there's, there's a a, a dichotomy, um, even within the realm of mania or within the realm of depression. They often mix together. Mm -hmm. I think people think, right. You're either on the bipolar, you're on the manic side, depressive side, but right. More often than not, you're both, both. You got dials of both. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think one reason I'm so grateful to be having this conversation is because you know, and my journey is far from over. I, in my mind, I'm like three years into figuring out who I am. Um, so I'm kind of a toddler, but you know, I feel like we only talk about people who are in stage 11 mania or stage zero depression, and we don't give a lot of conversation or thought to individuals that are just kind of in the middle of it. Individuals that are medicated, operating a really, you know, average, successful, normal life. And I think having awareness around what, I don't want to say adult bipolar, but what, what medicated managed bipolar looks like. And some of my biggest challenges as an adult in the workforce, raising a child, being married, seemingly successful life, right? Is that we still struggle immensely with emotional regulation. You know, I'm probably going to be the first person to lose my temper in my house, maybe my daughter these days, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm going to be, you know, the first person to feel those depressive feelings big. And so just because we're medicated and just because we go to therapy, like I just, I guess my my ask is just awareness, like mm-hmm. just having awareness that life for me is different even if it's successful, even if I'm in love, even if I have a beautiful daughter, it's different. And it's, it's a little bit more challenging, mm-hmm. which makes me a badass. But <laughs> <laughs> you are a badass. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on that note, I just want to say, um, I've been really looking forward to this. And I thought, at the very least, this is going to be not just meaningful, but really fun. And this has been like 88% more fun than I thought it would be. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, you are the perfect person to talk about this. So I'm so grateful that, well, one, that you have your podcast and, mm. and that I got to hear you talk about bipolar disorder. And so thank you for being open and vulnerable about that. And, you know, lots of people are going to hear this. And I think, I guess this, this has been really informative for me and it felt like a gift. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. A final thought on this story. As I've discussed in past episodes, bipolar disorder is a big tent, encompassing a vast range of clinical presentations. Patients with classic bipolar 1, those with periods of euphoric and eventually delusional mania, very commonly respond well to lithium. And like Louise, they also very often struggle with alcohol and other substances. I'm always very surprised when I meet someone with bipolar 1 disorder who hasn't long used substances for self-medication. 
Getting healthy and stable more often than not requires medication plus sobriety. As always, Chris and I love to hear your comments, your questions, and story ideas. You can reach us through my website, craigheacockmd.com. We'll be back in two weeks.